Pastor Glenn Thomas, senior pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. We welcome all of you to the study of God's Word here this morning. Uh, those joining us here in our gym, those joining us in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM, and those joining us, I guess, around the world on KFUO.org. Welcome to all of you, and we're so very happy you are with us as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you continuing to rejoice in the words of the angel to the women at the tomb. He is not here, he is risen, just as he said. We thank you for Christ's victory over sin, death, and the grave, and we thank you for giving us that victory by your grace through faith in him. And we thank you also for this opportunity to gather together in the study of your word. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us, to continue to guide us in that word so that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word and what it means for us in our lives as well. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our only Savior. Amen. All right, for those who may have not been here last Sunday or may not have been listening last Sunday, we actually last Sunday resumed our study of the Gospel of Luke, kind of leaving off, or starting off where we left off, rather, uh, last fall. So we are in Luke chapter 14, and you will recall that we are on the way to Jerusalem with Jesus. Uh, in Luke 9.51, Luke says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And so he is very purposely uh, going to Jerusalem for the final time where he will offer his life as payment in full for all sin and all evil. And what we have here is the so-called travel narrative that uh, much of the material is unique to Luke. And so we're very thankful for that. And we left off last week with Jesus at a dinner party that was thrown at a leading Pharisee's home. And you remember that Jesus had some comments uh, for those. First of all, yeah, we looked at verses 7 through 11 of chapter 14, and Jesus addressed some comments to those who were invited there. And uh, it's terms of always seeking the best seats and the places of honor. And Jesus said, no, uh, don't do that. Sit at a lower place and be asked to come up to a higher place instead of right away looking to take the high place and then perhaps being asked to go to a lower place. And remember we said last week that uh, we think there's a lot more going on here than Jesus simply giving etiquette rules uh, for dinner parties. Uh, it reflects, first of all, I think we can say, the attitude that his disciples or followers should have not one of arrogance and self-importance, but rather one of humility and service. And secondly, you can certainly see that in the scriptures, the whole imagery of a banquet or a feast is used throughout scripture, really, to refer to the heavenly banquet, sometimes referred to as the eschatological banquet, that Jesus will share with all of us. We speak of it at times as the marriage feast which will have no end, or the marriage feast of the kingdom, various titles. So there is definitely a, an ultimate fulfillment in that banquet which will come uh, for all of us uh, beginning on the last day. 
So we pick up now, Jesus in verses 7 through 11 has given some instruction, we might say, some guidance for those who are attending a banquet. Now he turns to those who are giving the banquet, those, the, the host, in other words, we might say, uh, of the banquet. So let's start at Luke 14, verse 12, and I'm going to read uh, 12 through 14, and then we'll go back and talk about it. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. All right, let's go back and look at these words. So is Jesus instructing us that we should never invite our family members or our friends to our house for any kind of a meal or banquet? Does that, that kind of get us off the hook here? No. Uh, what's his point? Not only, don't only invite those who are close to you and those who can repay you. Because think of the context. He is sitting at a dinner party, and who is invited there? Just the other Pharisees, most likely, and the others who are thinking of themselves in, in quite lofty uh, terms, seeking out the, the best seats and the places of honor. So don't only invite those who can repay you. And you know, I forget what I was reading, but I once uh, was reading a section, I can't remember the book it was, but talked about how it, the author asked to, you to think of your friends and the people whom, with whom you associate and how many of them can do nothing for you in return. We often associate, don't we, only with those who can do something for us in return. And it made me stop and think about myself personally in that regard. How many, how many people do we know and associate with who really can do nothing for us, we only can do for them. And so Jesus, again, is striking at the, the attitude, I guess you might say, or the, the outlook that his disciples would have. Don't be in everything for yourself and for your own return. The kind of same attitude that he's talking about with those who attended the banquet, he's now transferring over to those who would give the banquet, okay? And if we think again, who is going to be in the eschatological banquet? Are there going to be people in the eschatological banquet in the last day who are, who have been rather, and won't be that by that time, blind, crippled, lame, and so on? Absolutely. So again, we see this reflecting the ultimate fulfillment in the eschatological banquet. Um, as he goes on, he says, uh, rather invite, so do invite these people, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now, let's review. If you were crippled, lame, or blind, what was the common uh, homespun theology that people operated with at that time. If you had one of those, or maybe multiple of those things wrong with you, what did the people conclude about your relationship with God back in those times? Yeah, you're a sinner. There must, there must be something wrong in your relationship with God 
that you are in this condition. And the classic case of that is, remember when the disciples and Jesus come upon the man who was born blind. And what do the disciples ask? Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind, right? So their, their disciples were kind of operating with that sort of understanding about life. And unfortunately, the other side was true back at that time as well. If you were wealthy and on top of the world and everything was going great for you, what would they conclude about you? You must be, you must be in, in with God like that. You, must be, you and God must be just like uh, peas and carrots, right? And uh, everything must be great. And, you know, we have to watch out. I don't want to get off too far on this. But we have to watch out that we don't fall into that same kind of thinking. That when something bad happens in our life, some tragedy, first of all, we as Christians are never promised that we are spared from tragedies in life, right? Horrible things. Uh, loss of a job, car accident, whatever, you know, go down the list. We're, not, we're never promised we're going to have a, a life of ease. And when something tragic does occur in our life, we have to be careful that we don't fall into that sort of thinking. And if, if you're not careful, you can begin to think, I wonder if this is God getting me back for this or that, right? And sometimes people fall into that kind of thinking, you know? I didn't go to church last week. This must be God getting me back for that, right? And we've got to be very careful that we don't fall into that, that line of, of thinking ourselves. So Jesus says, these are the people you invite. And what would the Pharisees be thinking as he's saying these words? You've got to be crazy. You expect us to invite them, which shows how detached and uh, far away from compassion they really were. Okay? They were more concerned that everybody followed the rules and the regulations as they prescribed them than they were helping, each one of these people would be those who would be begging in the streets. The poor, the crippled, and the lame, they would be the ones that the Pharisees would pass by when they're begging in the streets. And he says, invite them. And he says, when will they get their reward? When will they be rewarded? Not by those people who are coming. They can't, they can't do anything for you. But when does Jesus say, they will receive their reward at the resurrection of the just. Now, when's that going to be? The last day, when Christ returns, right? And it will be the rising up of the just. Now, how, who are going to be the just on the last day? And, and the just now, I should say, too. All, yeah, that's a good way to put it. All of those who are justified or all of those who are pronounced not guilty by faith, through faith, in Jesus Christ. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the just on the last day will be when they would get their reward. And we would say all will receive their reward, right? On that last day. All the just, I should say, will receive their reward on that last day. So the idea here again is don't be thinking in terms of self-importance and what others can do for you 
as you're a member of the kingdom, look around and see those around you who are, in this case, he uses the examples, poor, crippled, lame, and blind, okay? And be, you know, look beyond yourself, is it maybe another way to, to put it. But did you have a... Isn't com- this also an implication of who God invites to the banquet? Yes. Yeah, the uh, question was, isn't this also an implication of who God invites to the banquet? And absolutely so. We're going to come down to that. It's coming up in chapter 14. Uh, we're going to see who gets invited. You're going to see the same, uh, spoiler alert here, you're going to see the same people identified by Jesus when he tells the parable of the great banquet to come. The same people are going to be invited, finally, as the last call for that banquet. Okay, So that's coming up. Any other questions or comments? That's a good one. All right, let's go on now. And uh, verse 15, just talk about this for a second. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So think about that. One of those Pharisees who was sitting there heard about the resurrection of the just. And it says, when he heard these things, referring back to the resurrection of the just and being repaid at that point, he kind of gets it. And he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So who will be at that banquet, the banquet in the kingdom and of the kingdom, blessed will be anyone or everyone who will be there. Again, at that eschatological banquet on the last day. And it just kind of pops out of nowhere. This isn't Jesus speaking, it's one of those Pharisees who you think, well, maybe he's starting to get it here, okay? So then going on, now, now here, now notice what Jesus is going to go into here. But he said to him, and this is going to be a, a bit of a, I guess you could call it a, a parable. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Well, let's stop right there. Who is the man, do you think, who gives a great banquet and invites many? God, that would be God. Yeah, the kingdom of God. So he invites many. I mean, we could say invites, we could say really invites everyone, right? Uh, verse 17, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So let's stop right there for a moment. Back in Middle Eastern culture, this is exactly the way it would operate. There would be the invitation that would go out first, and it would go out well in advance. And then when the banquet was ready, there would be someone that the master would send to summon the people and say to them, the banquet is now ready. We have, I was thinking, we have kind of a parallel custom in our country where you'll get an invitation first that maybe save the date, right? And then you get the actual invitation. And then maybe the day before you get what? An email reminder, 
right? I mean, that, with the evites now that we have, the electronic invitations, I think it automatically does that about 24 hours before you get another one. So that's kind of this parallel to what happens here, except they didn't have electronics, they did it person to person. So if we said the one who is giving the dinner party is God, who is the servant who comes and tells people, hey, everything is ready now? Who would that be? Yeah, probably Jesus. Now, you read some scholars will say, well, it's not just Jesus, it was the prophets too, okay. But certainly, Jesus is there doing this right now, right? He, how many times didn't he say the kingdom of God is at hand? Like, here it is. And so he says, everything is now ready. Now, ready. Okay, the immediacy of this invitation is now. And does everybody say, great, let's go? No. Excuse after excuse after excuse. You know, I bought some property. I need to go and look at my, my field or the, the dirt that I bought, right? Or I bought five yoke of oxen, so that'd be ten. I've got to go look at my ten animals that I bought. Or I married, I married a wife. I, I can't come. They've got, does, can, can a guy go and look at his dirt later? Yeah. Can a, can a guy go and look at his oxen later? Yeah. Um, I don't get too far into the marriage, but uh, uh, his wife is, wife is still going to be there, right? So these are, as Jesus tells them, they are excuses, aren't they? They, they simply don't want to come. That's the bottom line. And they feel they have to have a reason not to come. Okay? So let's think about people today. What keeps, what are some excuses that people offer today for either not coming to the banquet or putting the banquet off, their attendance at the banquet off? What are some, some things that get in the way, we might say, of people coming to the banquet today in our world? Work, yeah, too busy, right? I'll wait till I retire. I'll have more time then, right? So career, and and again, uh, probably don't have a God-focused uh, view of their vocation and what they're doing, right? Probably it's probably turned in on self. Instead of thinking what they're doing is serving God and their neighbor, they're probably turned in on themselves if they have that kind of attitude. What are some other things? Career or job would be one. Little League Baseball, okay. Oh, okay. I see what you, because you're going to games instead of, I'm too busy on the weekends. We've got, yeah, we've got baseball or uh, soccer or football or basketball or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's, that's, I don't get into that. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. Golf, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, and I can worship, I can worship God out on the golf course, right? I can, and to which I always respond, but do you? You know, or is it uh, more thinking about the next shot? Anything else? There's, there's a lot of things. Yard work, what was he? Sleep in, yeah, Sunday I want to sleep in. After all, it's a day of rest, right? Or one thing we've been really sold on, I think, as a society, is that Sunday is my family day, Right? that I spend my time with my family. And I always uh, respond that, you know, going to church is a great family activity. You should try it sometime. So there are many things 
that, you know, we may, we may laugh at these examples that are given here, and we're really supposed to because they're meaningless, but just think of the things that today can get in people's way, or they let get in their way, maybe is a better way to phrase it. They let get in their way when it comes to attending the banquet, right? Uh, or, or at least keeping the banquet uh, at a distance, at an arm's length, okay? So now, notice what happens. We're down at verse uh, 21. So the servant, so this, again, if this is Jesus, or you could include prophets and others, the apostles as well. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. In other words, that, uh, that there was all these excuses. By the way, I should, I should have said, in Mideastern culture, to refuse hospitality was an insult to the family, to the entire family, was an insult. Not providing hospitality was an insult. And Jesus tells that parable about the guy who's um, visited at midnight by guests and goes and gets others to help him provide hospitality. The other side is true as well, that to refuse hospitality is an insult. And let's remember, who is the host here? God is. Okay, so, sorry, I should have said that earlier. So the servant, verse 21, the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, still in the city, and bring in, look who gets invited, the poor, the crippled, and blind, and lame. Now, where does that sound familiar? Go back up to verse 13, right where Jesus said, don't invite those who can only repay you, invite, there they are again, right? So he's actually saying, he's talking, there's no question now in this parable, he is talking about that heavenly banquet, that eschatological banquet yet to come. And look at who gets invited. It's, it's what the Pharisees would never want to acknowledge that God himself would invite those people to the banquet. And notice then that uh, verse 22, the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And let's just stop for a second. If we consider, again, Jesus to be this servant, and I think I prefer to do that actually because it says the servant, it doesn't say servants, but again, think of who Jesus associated with so many times. Not only the religious leaders, he spent plenty of time with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others, the scribes, but so many times also, he spent time with exactly the people whom the master tells him to go out and invite. Many times he heals them of their, whatever their ailment or, or problem, physical problem is, but he's here spending time with precisely those people. And in fact, when we get to chapter 15, at verse 1, the Pharisees are going to be all upset because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And it's exactly those people whom Jesus is inviting now to the banquet. So he goes out and, and does exactly what has been told. And guess what? There is still room in the banquet. 
So verse 23, and the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So now the father, here if we're thinking of this as God the father, says go out into the highways and byways, out into the hedges. We think this is now getting even, even out of Jerusalem, and there was even broader. And, in, and notice he says, compel them to come in. So here's another part of hospitality in Mideastern culture. If you got a last minute invitation, what were you supposed to automatically do? Decline it. This was just, was just the custom. Especially if you, if you felt that this was beneath, uh, th- that you were beneath those who were being invited. That's why the master says, compel them to come in. Compel them to come in. In other words, their natural reaction and response is going to be, no, sir, I, um, you know, I, I, I cannot come or I will not come. Compel them to come in. Okay? That, and notice there, how does the master want his banquet to be? Full, filled. He's not happy until it's filled. And um, here's another one where we say that, you know, that God desires that all should be saved, right? That none should perish, but that all should be saved, okay? Um, I once heard a sermon on this text, and it was, there was a section of it that talked about this compel them to come in. Let's stop for a moment. The pastor did this in the sermon. How does God compel us to come into his banquet hall? his banquet, his feast. Did we come in because we, we, we were eager to get in and he invited us and so, hey, oh yes, I'll, I'll come in. No, yes. Okay, okay, does use the law and uh, points out our sin, shows us our need for a savior. I was thinking even, even earlier than that and it kind of involves some water Baptism, right? Is baptism our doing? No. It is God bringing us into the kingdom, right? And uh, again, we go to Luther's explanation of the third article. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and keeps me in the true faith. So again, God compels us to come into that banquet. And who are the people that are out in the highways, byways, and hedges? Who would they include, I should say? Even Gentiles, right? Even Gentiles, which again, the Pharisees would just, it would would be beyond their comprehension that the Gentiles would be brought into the kingdom, okay? So this is quite a, there's quite a lot here in this simple little story about a master giving a banquet. And we think again ahead to the heavenly banquet yet to come for all of us. All right? So, uh, and then finally just to end up verse 24, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. By those men, he's referring to those who had excuses and simply would not come. I guess one other application here is that when God works through means, 
like the means of his word, can we refuse, can we um, uh, decline him? Yes, unfortunately for us, we can. Uh, and uh, happening here, he is working through his word to invite to the banquet. Even the servant Jesus is here. And unfortunately, we can decline. We don't believe in what's called irresistible grace, as some do today. We believe that when God works through his means, he is resistible. Uh, we looked before when Jesus uh, laments over Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, right? As a hen gathers her brood, but you would not. So again, we can refuse him when he is working through means like his word. Now, on the last day, when he is going to work very directly, there's no refusal. You know, can't, can't say I bought a field, I'm going to go look at it, or uh, you know, any of those types of things. Uh, you will be there. You will be there. We will all be there. And in a good way, we will be there. Okay? So there will be no resisting him on that day. All right? Let me stop here. Any comments, questions on this section that kind of finishes off the, the banquet? Mark? You do decline. Yes, you do decline a late invitation. Right, and so what you do then, when, the, when you decline, what you do then socially is you invite them again and almost, uh, not force, but as it says there, compel them to come. That was just the way society worked at that time. It was, I don't know what, if we have any customs like that, but, but it's just the, kind of the way the society worked at that time. So if you, got, like, if you got an invitation, like let's say it's Saturday morning, you got an invitation for a banquet on Saturday night, you would say, oh no, I, I cannot come, I'm sorry. And then it was up to the host to say, oh yes, you must come, it, you know, and, and almost argue them into coming. Does that help? Yeah, okay. Any other comments? Or, yes. Gosh. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So uh, Josh was mentioning the, uh, in Matthew 22, the parable, remember the familiar one, where there is, again, a wedding banquet. So we're talking about the same imagery here, dealing with that eschatological banquet, that heavenly banquet. And one does not have the proper garment on, which, again, was a custom back at that time. You were actually given, I think we may have some parties like that or banquets like that where you're given something some attire when you come in, it might, maybe it's just a hat or something like that. But he did not have, this guest did not have the proper garment on and so was expelled from the banquet. So again, if we think of the heavenly banquet as being that banquet, what is the garment that you better be wearing if you're going to be in that banquet hall? The robe of righteousness from Christ, exactly. And so that's a little bit different application, same imagery, but a little different uh, a point, I guess you would say, uh, of the 
of the of that parable. Yeah. Okay, you went. Uh, so the comment was, uh, Steve said he went to a synagogue and you wear the yarmulke, right? Yeah. Those of us that uh, went to uh, Israel, when we go to the Wailing Wall, you are also you're supposed to put on a yarmulke when you go to the to the Wailing Wall. So there's there's a garment that you're given uh, to attend something. All the old men were in there. Oh, really? Okay. So the comment was that all the older men who were in there had fedoras on uh, as well. So it, that's maybe another parallel. Yes. Yeah, it would be a... Right, it would be a strange, strange occurrence. That's correct. All right, any other comments or questions on this, again, on this banquet? Yes, Mark? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So Mark's question goes back to verse 15 about the guy who said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And the question was, is there any speculation as to who that was? And no, I didn't find any at all. It's just some nameless uh, guest at that banquet. Again, remember, we think it's probably a Pharisee. Uh, because again, this is, is a party, a dinner party being uh, probably a, a Sabbath day dinner party given by a ruler of the Pharisees, so a leading Pharisee at that time. And remember, Pharisees were lay people, they weren't clergy. Okay, good question. Any, uh, yes, Randy. Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's a good point, Randy. So let's go back. As Randy says, the, the people, if they're Gentiles, that are the ones out in the highways and the byways, uh, does that mean the first people? Let's just ask the question. Who were the first people that were invited and turned down, made excuses? The Jews, yeah. Now, we have to be careful we don't paint with too broad a brush here because there were definitely some Jews who did believe. And, you know, famously Nicodemus, of course, or Joseph of Arimathea, who were, were actually members of the Sanhedrin and follow Jesus secretly, uh, obviously did believe. So we don't want to say, we don't want to be all-inclusive, but in general, yes, they declined. And remember, there's another time Jesus tells the story, or he asks a group of them that a father had two sons, and he tells the first son to go out into the field and work, and the son says yes. He tells the second one, and the son says no, but eventually the first one doesn't end up going, the second one ends up going, who did the will of the Father? Well, it's the second one who was asked. Who were the first, who were the, who was symbolized by the first son who said, oh yes, and ended up not going? The Jews again, see? And so again, the second son would be the second one who actually said no originally and ends up going. So Jesus at various times um, uses different stories or means of trying to get this same idea across that they are the chosen people of God, going all the way back to Abraham, and yet they are refusing the invitation that is coming from Jesus himself because the banquet is ready. Ironically, they are refusing. Okay. So yeah, good question. Any others? Comments, questions? 
All right, now let's go on. And uh, here comes another difficult or hard saying of Jesus. So let's uh, go into this. Now, we're going to talk here about the, the cost of discipleship. So what does it mean? We're moving away from this banquet motif now. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus. And he's got, as verse 25 starts out, he's got great crowds or large crowds now following him. And he's going to, in effect, tell them that following me is not going to be an easy thing. It's not going to be a cakewalk. Okay? So let's read through this first, and then we'll go back and, and talk about it. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We'll stop there. We're going to leave a verse at the end. So let's start off here. Um, if we're going to be a Christian, that means we need to hate our father and mother and family, all of our family members. Is that, is that uh, what we teach? Is that what Jesus wanted to teach? What's, what's the first thing we do when we come across, as Lutherans now, a verse that we kind of squint at or scratch our head? What's the first thing we as Lutherans do? Not close our Bible and say, I don't understand that. Yes, we let Scripture interpret Scripture, don't we? That's a, that's a, a uh, rule that we normally follow as Lutherans. How do we know that this is not what Jesus means, that we're supposed to hate our father and mother in particular? Okay, he said love one another. Uh, now, but even more, I was thinking about it, even going way back. Yeah, the fourth commandment, right? The first commandment in the second table of the law is honor your father and your mother, not hate your father and your mother. So... We know Jesus is not contradicting the law here because he has said that not, uh, don't think that I have come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill it. And uh, not one iota, not one speck of the law will pass away. This is an ex example of what we call hyperbole that Jesus uses, and that simply means gross exaggeration to make a point. He has done this in other places as well. Do you remember when he's, he talked about uh, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Does he really mean we should go around plucking our eyes out and, and cutting off our limbs? 
No, again, it's hyperbole to make a point. Uh, in that case, you know, uh, sin is a serious thing. In this case, what's the point he's trying to make? Not that we should hate our family members, but that we should, in comparison to him, love them what? Less than him. That's the point. If you want to come after me, everything else is secondary, including your own family. Because there's another bigger family, an eternal family, that you are brought into when you're following him, right? This is a little hard for us to hear, I, I grant you that, um, because we, of course, it's, it's, we love our family. We're thankful to God for uh, the family members that we have, especially if you were uh, blessed as I was with uh, parents who, who raised you, had you baptized and raised you, uh, instructing you in the word of God. It's a hard thing for us to hear. But essentially, see what's happening here in the context. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's got large crowds following him now. Who knows what's going through their mind or what their understanding is. And he lets them know that, hey, if you want to come after me as you are here, just think of all the other things in your life, and they're going to be sec they should be secondary to me and the kingdom. Okay? So that is a hard thing. So notice there, um, father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. And isn't that going to be coming true in a very literal way for the apostles, for the disciples? Again, the tradition outside of Scripture has it that everyone but one of them will end up giving their life, will be killed because they are a follower of Jesus. So even your own life, you uh, make secondary in importance, in priority, to following him. That's how, when you think about it, it is eternally important, isn't it? Now, do we do a good job of that? Probably not, right? We're honest. Uh, there are so many things that we make so important. And remember, just verses ago, who were the people making excuses about? Their property that they bought, their oxen that they bought, even their wife. And here Jesus again says, everything else is secondary. Don't, don't let that get in your way when it comes to the kingdom. Okay? And he says there, uh, basically, the verse um, uh, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we sometimes in, in our language, in our talking every day, we use that word, uh, that term cross, in sort of a general way to refer to any malady that we may have in life, right? I might say something like, you know, my car doesn't start sometimes uh, when I need it to start the most, and oh, that's just a cross that I have to bear, you know? Uh, or, uh, you know, I got, I got uh, the flu last week. Uh, it's just a cross I have to bear. When the Bible uses the term a cross that you bear, it's a, something that happens in your life as a direct result of you being a Christian. So things like persecution, 
or people thinking less of you or people dismissing you as a result of being a Christian. Okay? That's the way the Bible uses that term differently than we use it many times in our common everyday speaking with one another. And so notice there that each one has to bear our own cross. Things are going, Jesus is letting them know that things are going to happen as a direct result of them being a Christian. And we shouldn't be surprised in our lives if we face some things in our life simply because we are a Christian. So if you've got a boss who's not a Christian, and in fact is very dismissive of Christians, how might that impact you at work? Passed over for promotion, absolutely. And um, there are definitely people, I'm sure, who have experienced that very thing. Somebody else gets promoted because the boss thinks less of you simply because you are a Christian, right? Or you have great ideas for a project and they're dismissed, right? Or somebody else gets the credit. Not that you seek out your own credit, but... So there, there are many crosses that we can bear, even in this country, where it's relatively easy, let's face it, to be a Christian. We don't, we don't face physical persecution, uh, or, or even our lives are not in danger because we're having a Bible class here, and it's even being uh, broadcast over the radio. But there are definitely places in the world that we could go today where that is the case. Your life is in danger, and so the church is basically underground and operating in secret and people do fear for their lives. Uh, that's the way, of course, it was in the earliest days of the church, in the, in the uh, first uh, couple centuries. Both Jews persecuting the Christians and Romans eventually uh, persecuting them as well. Jews because of uh, their abhorrence of Christ and what he did, and the Romans because the Christians refused to worship the emperor. And it wasn't until Constantine was converted in 313 uh, and gave uh, the edict that Christianity is a legal religion. And then 10 years later that it's the religion of the whole Roman Empire that things changed. Mark, did you have a question? Or point? Yeah, right. Yeah, Mark's talking about the culture itself that we live in can belittle us and everything that we, that we believe and think of it as, as foolishness. And we, we can see that from time to time, uh, certainly, as well. Okay. Yes, uh, Jan? Uh-huh, okay. All right. Okay. Right, right. So the comment was about, uh, we look at this, we can look at this as faith or no faith, but also there's an application for those who are disciples, uh, uh, I guess you'd say uh, warning us about the uh, things we can sidetrack our, make higher priority in our life 
not Jesus himself and his work and his kingdom. So certainly there is that, there is that uh, danger. And um, we do have uh, God uh, disciplining us at times in life for our good. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 7 and following, talks about that. And uh, just uh, yesterday, uh, we didn't uh, do this in the sermon for, uh, for Don Petering's funeral, but when Jesus talks about, I am the vine, you are the branches, in verse 5, well, before that, in the earlier verses, he's talked about uh, pruning that takes place so that the vine produces what? More fruit, right? So we have those kinds of images in the scriptures, and again, it is for our own good. And as the writer of the Hebrews says, it doesn't seem pleasant at the time. You know? It's like, did your parents ever tell you, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you? I don't know about that. Because <laughs> when you're on the receiving end, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't feel very good, does it? So, but again, we have a loving God whose primary purpose is our eternal salvation. And he does everything possible to make that occur. Yes, Ruth? Uh-huh. Right. Yes. Good point, Ruth. That, uh, remember, uh, if, if those of you that remember your, the questions that the pastor asked you at confirmation? Suffer all, even death, rather than fall away. You know, what I, the practice I have started is uh, before adult confirmation, we go through those questions. And I let them see, this is what I'm going to be asking you up there in front of the entire congregation. Because I don't think it's right to put people up publicly and ask them this question, and they're not knowing what's coming next. And, and when you think about it, that is quite a commitment you are making on, isn't it? Suffer all, even death, rather than fall away. And, uh, you know, it's maybe easy to say yes with the help of God while you're standing up there, but, you know, when, if it ever, um, we, we, of course, right, right. We pray it never gets to that point, at least for us. But again, there are, there are places in the world where it certainly does. Yes, yes. So, right, that is, that is the ultimate uh, question, isn't it? What is more important, your own life or the kingdom? Your life in the kingdom, I guess we should say. Exactly. That's, that's an excellent point. Any others? Keith? Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, so the, uh, Keith's point was the, the, this is before the actual cross of Christ being crucified. Uh, so the mention of the cross must be um, startling, perhaps, or, or uh, perplexing to them. Now, we would say that even though Christ has not been crucified yet, crucifixion, unfortunately, was a common practice. Uh, common, it was. I mean, uh, they would always take place, and people, in fact, it was meant to send a message to potential criminals. That's why the charge was put on top of the cross, you know, and, and everybody would be able to pass by. Can you imagine that today? If, if Think of how, uh, I don't know what to say, uncivilized that is, that you've got it in a common thoroughfare, 
And here's somebody being crucified with a charge up there. And the idea was it was to be a deterrent. That if, so in other words, if you're thinking about that crime, that might be you someday up there on the cross. That was the idea, right? And so they certainly would have been, but this kind of use of a cross, you wonder did they understand yet when he meant cross referencing following him versus just a cross or what they were thinking of. That's a, that's a good point. But um, even though Christ had not died on the cross yet, there were crucifixions that took place just regularly. Yeah. So, all right, good. Any other questions, comments? All right, we're going to finish up. Well, let's just go uh, um, down at the bottom, verses uh, 30, um, well, actually 29. Actually, the end of 28 is sort of the, the summary, I guess you'd say. First of all, what do you need to do before you're following Christ? Count the cost, right? Count the cost. In other words, he's saying to them, if you think following me is going to be easy and, you know, you're going to have all you want to eat and there's going to be, uh, everybody's going to be healed of their, of their uh, maladies, think again. In other words, he's, this, is, this is the opposite of, of a sales pitch, right? The exact opposite. He's actually discouraging them with what it's going to mean to follow him. We would never see that today, right? We'd have a PR guy out in front uh, trying to paint a rosy picture for what it's going to be to follow Christ. And Christ is being is completely honest with them here. This great crowd coming after me, don't think it's going to be easy, right? There are going to be hardships. Yes? Yes. Good point. Uh, the point was brought up about the, the we have what we called as a term, we, we talk about the theology of the cross. And we could talk about that for a whole Bible class, actually. But it's the opposite of the theology of glory. Theology of glory is, uh, you can watch that on television on Sunday mornings, and uh, I'm not going to mention a name here, but it would, that, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Yeah, and, and, if, and if you're not... Whose fault is it? Yeah, and so you just need to pray harder. You need to do this more and that more. And the theology of the cross is just the opposite. First of all, it does recognize exactly what we've been talking about, that there are going to be hardships as a direct result of following Christ. And the other thing that I always add when we talk about the theology of the cross is that sometimes it is in the midst of the worst tragedies in life that God does some of his greatest and most profound work. And the ultimate example of that is Jesus dying on the cross, isn't it? In what is horrible and a tragedy, God is doing some of his most profound or the most profound work for all people. And the same thing happens in smaller ways in individual crosses that come up in our lives. And sometimes it's during a a bout with cancer or it's during a, a whatever the, whatever the cross that in that way that in the midst of a tragedy in life, God does some of his greatest and most profound work. Okay. So yes, that's a good point. Josh. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so how do we, how do we ju- uh, reconcile this with Christ's statement that, Come on to me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. The yoke that he's talking about there was the following of a rabbi. When you followed a rabbi, you were said to be yoked to that rabbi and his teaching. And Jesus is talking to uh, people in the midst of Pharisees. In fact, it even says, I think, right before that verse, uh, those who were burdened. So they're burdened with trying to keep the law and all of its all of its nuances that the Pharisees were putting forward. And Jesus says to the people who are burdened with this, this um, fixation, obsession, with every little detail of the law, no, don't do that. Come on to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden by trying to keep all of these rules and regulations, and I will give you rest. Yes, he has, he has made the yoke easy for us, hasn't he? Yes. Now, uh, we, we don't want to fall in a ditch on the other side of the road, though, either, and say that, well, that mean, then we don't, we don't worry about, about the kind of life we live or something like that. We certainly do, but it's a whole different motivation, isn't it? We do, we do it out of gratitude for... Right, right. All right, just, very, just so we can finish off and, and uh, start with 15, verse 1 next week. Notice there, and, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about salt as well. Uh, to his disciples, but salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So, if, if who would he, let me put it this way, how would a disciple of Christ lose their saltiness or their salty taste? Put it that way. If we think of a disciple as being salt, he says salt is good, how would they lose their saltiness? Falling away, or, or drifting away, or whatever, however we want to put it. And if it's lost its saltiness, what's it good for? In, in a sense, says nothing. It's not even good for, uh, in verse uh, 35, it's not even good for augmenting the soil. It's not even good for breaking down a manure pile. It's just, you just throw it away. And uh, so again, this kind of is a capstone of this whole section that he's been talking about about what it really means to be a disciple and come after him. And again, here's yet another verse that uh, says that it is possible, it is possible to fall away from the faith and certainly fall away from being a disciple or being disciple I guess we would say, in following Christ. So again, we don't believe a do- another doctrine called once saved, always saved. There are, again, churches out there that believe that. It's impossible for you to fall away from the faith. We would say, no, it certainly, unfortunately, is the case that you certainly can. Okay? And uh, so, again, we don't, we don't believe in that teaching as well. Yes, yes. And it's through, that, it's through word and sacrament that, we, uh, that God helps us retain our saltiness, isn't it? Yeah, okay. All right, we are out of time. We don't want KFUO to be mad at us. So let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.